0: So what economists mean by general equilibrium is that, you know, sort of one person's actions have broader ripple effects and ramifications on other people through the economy, right? Because we live in this interconnected system. And if we do a study where we just look at what happens when one household gets money and another doesn't, and we compare the two, we might see differences between those two households in terms of what stuff they have or how they behave or spend their time, but we aren't picking up those broader impacts. What does that all mean? For the rest of society, right? And I think with cash transfers, the most obvious example to think about to make this very concrete is that whenever people get cash transfers, they use them to transact. So there's somebody else that they go out and they buy food or they buy an asset, or maybe they even put money in a savings account that actually rarely happens. But whatever it is that they do, there's some counterparty to that transaction. And so it's sort of almost mechanical that that counterparty is going to be affected, at least to some extent, by it. And that means if we want to think about the total consequence of the transfers, we want to take that into account.
1: Hi, listeners. This is Luis Rodriguez, one of the hosts of the 80,000 Hours podcast. In today's episode, Paul Niehaus makes the case that rather than trying to predict what kinds of aid programs might benefit the global poor, we should give them cash so they can decide for themselves what they most need. This is the argument that led Paul to co found Give Directly, the nonprofit giving cash directly to the poor back in 2009. And since then, they've conducted dozens of studies to understand the benefits of giving cash. In this interview, we discuss the findings from some of the most important studies they've done so far. Specifically, Paul and I discuss how the impacts of GiveDirectly compared to USAID employment programs, whether there have been any USAID programs that outperformed GiveDirectly, the empirical evidence on whether giving cash directly can drive meaningful economic growth, and the case for universal basic income and GiveDirectly's UBI studies in Kenya, Malawi, and Liberia. We also spent some time discussing GiveDirectly's first and only major case of fraud in which just under 1 million of GiveDirectly's funds were stolen from beneficiaries in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Finally, before we get to the interview, a quick reminder that over on our other feed, 80 After Hours, we're releasing 20 to 30 minute highlights episodes. These aren't necessarily the most important parts of the interview, and if a topic really matters to you, I really recommend listening to the full episode. But for those of you who understandably don't have time to listen to our full three to four hour long episodes, we think these are a nice upgrade on skipping episodes entirely. At the moment, we've released highlights for 14 interviews from earlier in the year, including some of my personal favorites, Michael Webb on whether AI will soon cause job loss, lower incomes, and higher inequality, or the opposite, and Rohan Shah on DeepMind, and trying to fairly hear out both AI doomers and doubters. So if you'd like to try out those highlights episodes, you need to subscribe to our second feed, 80K After Hours. Okay, without further ado, Paul Nihao. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Niehaus. Paul is an economist at UC San Diego and entrepreneur working to end extreme poverty. He's also co-founder, former president, and a current director at GiveDirectly, a nonprofit that gives cash directly to some of the world's poorest. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. So I hope to talk about whether giving cash to the poor beats conventional aid and whether it might do even better than that by boosting an entire region's economic growth. But yeah, first, can can you basically just explain the Key case for giving cash directly to the poor?
0: Yes. But I would flip the question because I think that, in fact, the better question is why not? And so let me explain what I mean by that. So, you know, we've been at this project, right, of trying to accelerate global development, poverty reduction for quite a long time now, 50 or 60 years or so since that became a thing. Um, and we spent, you know, many trillions of dollars over that time period. Um, you know, some of it well, and I think there have been some big successes. But the thing I want to emphasize is that almost all of that money has been spent by people other than the folks living in extreme poverty who we're trying to help. And yet, if you look at the data, um, I would say that in in aggregate, if you were to look across the evaluations that we've done, and it's now been 20 years or so since we started to do these credible experimental tests, right, that really tell us, hey, what works and what doesn't. um, I think that generally speaking, the people living in extreme poverty have a better track record of putting money to use in ways that improve their lives than the top-down approach where we have program designers plan and allocate money. And there are, of course, exceptions in both directions. But as as a sort of general observation, I think that's a pretty fair characterization. And so I think we want to flip it around and say, you know, hey, there are lots of obvious reasons and lots of good data why it makes sense to let people living in poverty decide how this money that's meant to benefit them gets used. When do we think we can do better than that by coming in and doing something different from what they would have done? And I think there are cases where that's true. But that's the way we've tried to position Give directly as saying, you know, first, like, we think we should do a lot of this. But second, we think this should be a bit of a prompt and a challenge to us when we think about other ways of helping people living in poverty to ask, why do we really think that we as outsiders can do better?
1: Right. So the default is we have these resources that we'd like to give to help people in poverty. Um, let's give them the resources as a default. And then if we, we can confidently do much better for them by thinking through some alternative intervention, um, great, that, that could make sense. But that should be kind of the burden of, I don't know, Some whoever wants to give this intervention should have to be confident that that's, that that's actually going to beat cash.
0: Yes, yes. One of my uh, our earliest uh, supporters and a dear friend of mine, Mark Lambert, once said to me, you know, the way I think about it is imagine that this money were already in the hands of people living in poverty. If I could, would I want to tax it and then use it to finance other projects that I think would benefit them? And, you know, I think that's sort of an interesting thought experiment and a good one to say, like, you know, are there cases in which I think that's justifiable?
1: Yeah, right. That does. Yeah, that that does help pump that intuition for me of, yeah, for the most part, I can't really imagine wanting to tax the ultra poor. <laughs> There are very few things that I'd be confident enough I could do better with that money than um, than them choosing to spend it in ways that make sense for them. Yeah, I guess to make it more concrete, how do people spend the money they receive via cash transfers? I'm sure there are, there are loads of loads of things, but uh, what are some examples?
0: Yeah. So, you know, first, it's very important. How do we know, you know, sort of what data do we look to or how do we answer your question? And so just to underscore this point, you know, I think up until around 2000 or so, the answer is we actually didn't know too much about that or about other approaches because there had been very little high quality empirical testing. And it's only since then with the advent of, of sort of experimental, uh, the the randomized controlled trial movement, right, that I think we have generated an enormous amount of data on that. And so we've learned a lot in the last twenty years, and and partly I say that just to say that if you sort of came up like I did, hearing from people, oh, you can't just give money to people living in poverty; that doesn't solve the problem, or they're not gonna, you know, it's not really gonna do any good. Then you know that I, I heard that too, but that kind of comes from a time period in which we actually didn't have much uh, rigorous data to speak to the question. So what actually happens in all of these studies, these experimental trials, right, where some people are given money, others are not, and then we compare outcomes and compare you know, their budgets and their spending patterns to see what they've done. A lot of different things happened. And that's part of the point, right? Which is that cash transfers give people a lot of flexibility to do what they want with it. And so there is no one answer to the question, you know, what do people living in poverty do with cash transfers? Each person's going to do something different. And that's intentional. And that's by design. You know, just if I were to say, well, how does Lisa spend money? Right? We'd say, well, lots of different things, right? And and probably different from the things that Paul spends money on. But that having been said, you know, I think there's pretty consistent evidence that people spend money on things that are positive, that improve their lives. Some of those are things that improve their lives today, like better food, better nutrition. Some of those are things that are going to improve their lives in the future, whether because they're buying durable goods or building better housing that's going to last for a while, or because they're investing in productive assets that are going to increase their income, or because they're spending on schooling for their kids, which will improve their lives in the long run. And then we don't see evidence of the negative things that people were most worried about. You know, things like, "Well, oh, what if people just stop working and don't try to improve their lives on their own? Or what if people, you know, misuse the money in ways that are actually harmful for them, like spending it on you know, alcohol and tobacco and things like that? You know, we generally haven't seen evidence of those things.
1: Yeah, yeah. To get even more concrete, is there are there specific kind of case studies that you could give, maybe one or two I can I have sort of a vague sense of what durable goods might mean, but yeah, are there are there a couple of people or cases that come to mind?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think within that category of durables, housing is really the thing that stands out in the sense that for a lot of give directly projects, for example, that's been a thing that a sizable share of people have invested in. And so you know, very concretely, I mean, literally concretely, right? That might go from, mean going from having a mud floor to a concrete floor, right? Or having, uh, you know, wattle and daub sort of mud walls to concrete walls, or going from having a thatch roof to a metal roof over your head, or just having a bigger house, right, with enough space for more people in your family, things like that. Um, so that's very common. You know, you can also kind of pick individual people and go and talk to them and say, hey, what did you do with the money? And that's a little tricky, because then you have to think about the counterfactuals, and you have to think about, well, you know, maybe they just know what sort of things Western NGOs like to hear. So I would always take that with a grain of salt. But you can also get some very colorful things. You know, one of my favorites was somebody who used transfers from GiveDirectly to buy musical instruments and start a band, and they started touring around. So, you know, it's a it's actually a program to stimulate the arts, it turns out, right?
1: Yeah, well, cool. Okay, so I guess the, the key theme here seems to be GiveDirectly just values kind of recipient choice super highly. My sense is that one of the core values of GiveDirectly is giving the recipients of charitable efforts a choice around how they use donated resources. Yeah, is that right? And if so, why why does that seem so important?
0: That's right. And there are two reasons. Um, one is instrumental, which is that, you know, we often think that actually people who are there on the ground living their own life are going to have more insight and more perspective on how to use money than we as outsiders would, not always, but often. So, you know, the housing, the metal roofs, I think, are a good example of that for me personally. You know, where, look, you know, okay, I have a PhD in development economics. And so I think you, you know, sort of feel comfortable saying that as far as like expertise goes and what to do about poverty, I'm as well trained as anybody. Um, you know, I never would have guessed that so many people wanted to replace their thatch roof with a metal roof. And when we saw so many people doing that and looked into it to try to understand why they were doing that. Um, you learn interesting things. Like if you have a thatch roof, you have to replace it or repair it every so often. And that costs money. if you have a metal roof, it lasts longer. And so you save that money. And so it ends up looking like a pretty good investment, a long-term investment to build a metal roof. Or you can use a metal roof to collect clean drinking water from the rainwater and you don't have to travel a long way to a lake or a river and you're less likely to get sick from things that are in the groundwater, things like that. So that's all stuff that you know was complete news to me as an outsider, but completely obvious to the people living on the ground. so I think it's partly in order to be able to tap into that local information. but I do also think and this you know this may vary a little bit. I think depending on the donor, I personally put a lot of value in people's ability to make choices per se. you know I'd say that in sort of my description of an ethically good world would be one in which a lot of people have more autonomy and more self-determination than they do now even if they do sometimes make mistakes or use it in ways that I disagree with to some extent, I put a lot of intrinsic value in that.
1: Let's talk about the empirical evidence a bit more. So unconditional cash transfers have been studied empirically many times in a range of contexts, um, as you've noted. Yeah, can you summarize what we know about the return on investment recipients get?
0: Yeah, I think it's tricky because people are going to spend money on such a wide array of things. And so if you wanted to provide a full accounting for all of that stuff, you really need to get into all these different categories of saying, You know, there's some benefit of people eating better today, kids being better nourished. Some of that might be today benefit. Some of that may be long-term benefit. There's, you know, spending on education to think about the long-term returns to that. There's the durables like housing. There's some flow of value that you get from having a better house, but that's not easy to quantify. There are productive assets. That's perhaps the one where it's easiest, where we can say, you know, so-and-so, you know, they spent so many dollars on a motorcycle or on livestock, and now they have a business and they earn some more revenue from that. So there are all these sorts of things which you know I think are actually and I don't think anybody's really made a serious effort to sort of put all of them on an equivalent scale and say here's like the bottom line number. You know that having been said there are certainly cases you can pick out where you know a large share of the money got invested in some sort of asset and business got better and the return on capital in that business was, you know, maybe 20% per year or 30% or even up to 50%. So there are certainly cases like that where in a sort of very narrow financial sense, we can say, well, we've learned from this that people have access to high return investments, and it's great that we're able to finance them. But I would actually push back a little bit. I think about that instinct of trying to kind of put everything into one number. uh, Because I think once you get into the reality of how diverse life is, uh, it's too complicated for that.
1: Yeah, it must be frustrating that, well, it seems like there are all these um, randomized control trials on a bunch of interventions like this, including unconditional cash transfers. And many of them, in some ways, have it easy. They're tracking the effect of bed nets on malaria. And it's pretty easy to measure uh, malaria, at least relative to how difficult it seems to be to measure. How do people spend money when there are dozens, hundreds? in some sense, an infinite number of potential options for them. And how do you measure the benefit they get from that?
0: And there are all these, these these sort of knock-on things, like, you know, you see impacts on mental health, or recently there have been papers that found reductions in rates of suicide or rates of all-cause mortality. And so you also think about that, you know, is that a separate thing that I need to value separately, or is that the result of all these other things that I was just talking about? So, so I think it's really, really hard. And actually, I think that the way economists have traditionally thought about it, which to me makes more sense, is to say we're actually going to think of this as like the numeraire, right? The value to giving someone a dollar is a dollar. And then we're going to use that as a reference point in a comparison to other things and say, well, relative to that, how great is a bed net or deworming or any of these other things we want to think about?
1: Yeah, I see. And at least part of the thinking behind Give Directly is like, In surprisingly many cases, the value of giving someone something that you've decided in advance might be best for them, that costs a dollar, might actually be less than a dollar because people have such different needs and it's hard for us living in other countries to predict them.
0: That's the thing we want to watch out for. And and the issue there, maybe we get into this, is that in the sort of aid or philanthropic system, there isn't any built-in feedback loop that prevents us from doing that, right? So, you know, think about it by comparison to a commercial business If I'm trying to sell something for a dollar and people value it at less than a dollar, nobody buys it. And I learn quickly, this isn't working, right? I don't have product market fit. In the philanthropic world, if it costs you a dollar to produce something and people value it at less than a dollar, they're going to say, oh, thank you. You know, this is better than nothing. And so you don't get that feedback loop of people telling you, hey, there's something better that you could have done with your money. So we have to be very intentional about building that in.
1: Yeah okay so so I agree it seems like for for most of the history of charitable aid it doesn't seem like there have been the feedback loops that allow us to learn things like when I bought this thing for this person in poverty, the value of it was actually less than the amount I spent. And giving giving that person the cash would have actually been better. But a very cool thing that started happening over the last five years is that USAID has started testing its Africa-based programs to see how they compare to giving cash. Can you explain the overall approach there?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to USAID as we enter into this topic. You know, USAID, they have a huge budget to think about. And at the same time, they face a lot of constraints because when Congress gives them money, they give it to them with very specific instructions, like use this for nutrition in Rwanda, let's say. And so they have to be very thoughtful about being observant of their congressional mandates, those constraints that are placed on them. And so, you know, they've sort of over time developed lots of different programs that they think, based on everything we know about development, about poverty, are going to be the best at achieving those goals given the budget they have. What happened a few years ago, um, which I think is super exciting, this partnership that emerged between USAID and Give Directly was that staff within USAID heard a bit about Give Directly and some, you know, podcasts like this that we're doing. And um, I think heard specifically about some questions about, hey, you know, would you be up for comparing this head to head with other more traditional approaches, like giving people cows or things like that? And, you know, we had said, yeah, of course, that would be great. We should do it. And USAID staff said that would be really interesting. Like maybe we could try that with our programming as well. And so working with them and with some partners at Google and at Open Philanthropy, we set up an initiative within USAID where any country office that wants to can opt in to design a project where they give some people their conventional programming designed to achieve whatever goals has been set for it. And they give some other people cash transfers that are equivalent, cost the same amount of money to deliver. And then we just look at the two things side by side and say, which one does more to achieve the goals that USAID have set for themselves. And, you know, sort of emphasize, like we're fixing the goalposts here as being the goals that USAID has set. So if the goal is to like increase employment, let's say, right? Cash transfers are not an intervention designed to increase employment, right? They're an intervention to let people do whatever the heck they want with the money. And so we'd expect that to be a bit of a lower bar, right? Like presumably if your goal is just to increase employment, there's some way of doing that that's more effective than cash transfers. But hey, let's test it and find out. And so um, USAID has now done a series of these, uh, five studies in four different countries, comparing head-to-head the impacts of their conventional programming to cash transfers. And, you know, that's just totally revolutionary for USAID because historically USAID has done very little experimental evaluation at all, let alone this sort of head-to-head testing of two different alternative approaches to try to achieve the same goal, which is very unique. And so they just deserve a lot of credit, I think, for being leaders in that and being willing to kind of put what they're doing to the test and learn from that how to do better.
1: Yeah, totally. When I first read about this, I just felt huge kind of admiration for for whoever at USAID decided they were open to this. So props to them. Yeah, I'm interested in talking about uh, maybe just one of those programs as as an example. So I think one of the programs tested was a workforce training program in Rwanda, which uh, is a country that has you know very serious unemployment problems. Can you talk me through the setup of that uh, that experiment?
0: Yeah, this is the first of these benchmarking studies that Directly and USAID have partnered on. And um, I wasn't a PI on this project, but I was involved in helping to get it set up. And so I can speak a little bit to the design, the results. The uh, USAID program that we're benchmarking here is called De uh, Decoré. And the goal here is around employment and livelihood for young people. Not necessarily wage employment, could also be self-employment. So there's sort of multiple pathways through this intervention that people envision people might be able to choose between. And so in that sense, it's sort of a nice and thoughtful intervention and that there's a bit of flexibility, right? And some recognition that, hey, you know, not everybody's the same and some people, you know, should take different paths through life. What the program actually involved is a series of different modules that people take over the course of a year. And these are things like relevant work readiness training, employability skills training, some on the job learning through internships, internship opportunities, things like that. Some networking links to employment opportunities, so forth. And so this sort of reflects USA's overall strategy on workforce readiness and skills training. And it also builds on a predecessor program that USAID had run in Rwanda before. So we sort of really think of it as being like a best-in-class reflection of here's our current state-of-the-art thinking on how to do this stuff and deal with this issue of youth underemployment, which, as you say, is a huge issue, not just in Rwanda, but elsewhere. So what the study then did is say, OK, some people are going to be assigned to get that, and then some other people are going to be assigned to get cash transfers. And they varied the size of the cash transfers a bit. But the broad goal was to sort of bracket what they thought the cost of this USAID program was going to be so that we can say, hey, if we were going to spend, you know, it ended up being about $350, I think, on this program or $350 just as a transfer, which of those would do more to achieve these goals that we've set? And, you know, in terms of the outcomes they're focusing on, it's the stuff you'd imagine given the goals of the program, right? The primary outcomes are mostly things to do with employment and earnings, productive hours, work, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah, so talk me through the results.
0: Yeah, I think it's best to, you know, sort of go straight to the authors of the paper for this. And I think they sort of emphasize two points, which I think are, are are right. I sort of agree with their reading of the results. Um, one is that HD, the, the USA Design Program, did deliver real benefits on some of the things that it was designed to impact. Um, so it did increase productive hours of work. Um, it also increased some secondary outcomes like productive assets and savings, and it improved subjective well-being. So, you know, it did do some, not all, but some of the things that it was designed to do. Um, we can, you know, feel confident of that statistically. But also on every outcome that HD improved, you got bigger, in some cases, significantly bigger impacts from a cost equivalent cash transfer. And it also increased some of the other outcomes that HD did not, like monthly income or sort of household and individual level consumption and so forth. And so to me, this is kind of an exactly example of the sort of thinking we want to be doing, which is you know, if we really put our minds to it and tried to design a program to improve these things, we probably will have some impact, right? The question is not, is there impact or zero impact? But it's really more about like how much and how does that compare to this much simpler and much more streamlined approach? And so in this case, it seems like the simpler approach actually got you more of the things that you wanted.
1: Which is especially wild in this case, because like you've said, the original program was designed specifically to target underemployment. And giving cash is... Not though, I guess maybe is the is cash in this case considered monthly income? Like, is is that could that be responsible for that particular outcome getting bumped up? You
0: no, know, when we talk about income, it's income net of any transfers. You know, given to people through the study. Wow, that's a not uncommon, in fact, misperception of the results from people that want to dismiss them. But that is in fact not the case. That would be of a, yeah. a silly own goal on the part of the researchers, and they did not do that.
1: Yeah, I guess. In any case, it is just uh, particularly mind-blowing, I think, that giving cash so kind of unambiguously outperforms this program targeted specifically at this problem. Do you mind saying kind of which outcomes cash was particularly good on relative to the program?
0: Yeah. And I think, by the way, just two things. One is, you know, we're talking about one specific example. You know, as I said, GiveDirectly has now done a series of these. I think that actually in most of those, you'd say that cash looks stronger on the whole. But there are cases where you're going to get more impact on some outcomes with the conventional programming. So like, you know, as we're talking about this one example to be concrete, which is great, let's also not sort of over index to it. But, you know, the other thing is that I actually think that this is not a shock to a lot of people who've actually worked in the aid industry and understand how the sausage gets made. And they work hard and they do their best. But I think everybody understands that actually these things are pretty hard. And there is, you know, a lack of this kind of feedback and, and iteration that you want to have in the system. So, like, when I've talked about this with people who've been inside for a long time, I don't think there's an enormous amount of surprise. Yeah, so.
1: they're not shocked.
0: But yeah, in terms of your question about magnitudes, um, it's a little tricky in the paper in that most of the outcomes are measured as indices, or they're sort of measured as percentage changes. And so this is sort of actually a common, a big issue in development economics right now, which is you know outside of our scope for today. But I think it's a big problem because we don't care about percentage changes; we care about changes relative to the cost of the program. But to give you one example, so the you know the cost equivalent cash transfer raised monthly income by ninety nine. Inverse hyperbolic sign points, which you can think of as being kind of like 99%. Okay. The HD program uh, impacted monthly income by 28 IH points. You think of as 28 percentage points. So, you know, that's a sort of like important metric where the difference is quite big. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess I'm still inclined to be surprised and impressed. Um, Given that this is like a best in class program, it's like the best way USAID knows how to improve underemployment and still giving cash directly is better. What is it about the way the sausage gets made that makes this not super surprising to people working on this on the ground
0: well i think I think there are sort of three things to highlight one is the sort of absence of automatic feedback that I mentioned earlier right that I think it's fundamentally difficult when you're doing philanthropic stuff and you don't have customers that can tell you, "Hey, this isn't that great actually right to learn two is all of the complexity that comes with being a big multinational bureaucratic organization, right? And that's obviously not unique to USAID or to any big organization, but there's all sorts of stuff and baggage in terms of decision-making that comes with that. But I think the the third thing is that there are different categories of problem that it's helpful to distinguish. And those are you know what economists would call sort of private good versus public good problems. So me getting a job and earning a living is a very relevant problem to me. And I'm going to do what I can to do that. And I may not do it, you know, I may face constraints that make it hard, or I may make mistakes or not understand certain things, all of that sort of thing. But like, we should generally have the expectation people are going to be pretty motivated to try to figure that out on their own, at least to some extent. And so I think that's the sort of problem where to come in as an outsider and have a really disproportionate impact is going to be relatively hard. Then there are problems like preventing everybody in my community from getting malaria, right? Right where, you know, I have a motivation to not get sick myself, but I really don't have sort of a strong motivation or perhaps strong enough motivation to solve everybody else's problem for them, right? Or even taking it a step further, right? Sort of doing the innovation, the R&D to discover a cure for malaria, a way to prevent it at scale. That's a public good issue, right? Where one person's actions have much broader ramifications. And so that's a place where you'd expect coming in as an outsider, like, yeah, maybe we can actually have a really disproportionate impact because no one person on their own is going to be as motivated to solve the problem. Right. And so, you know, to me, these sort of employment and livelihood generation problem, those are really private good problems. And so I think that's generally going to be a tough area for us to make outsized progress relative to public goods issues. And I think that's why when you look at the things that GiveWell has recommended over the years historically that they think do do better than cash transfers, they almost always have, you know, most of them have this sort of uh, you know, public health infectious disease uh, flavor to them.
1: Okay, so in this case of employment, can you help me understand the story for why cash is so helpful? I'm sure um, people do loads of different things with the cash, again, as we've already discussed. But are there narratives, at least in in a few specific cases, that kind of illustrate like why this is even plausible?
0: Sure, sure. And I think most of the answer, the honest answer is no, that that's not what the study does, that it doesn't go into the weeds of like, what do people do? And there's certainly no sort of individual case studies or anything, right? This is a a paper, it's a bunch of regression tables that show you average effect. So that's just not what it is. There are, you know, like you see the impacts on people's assets and their sort of business assets and productive assets. So, you know, in some sense, yes, like mechanically we can say, okay, like people who got the transfers use them to start or expand an enterprise and they're earning more from that enterprise Um, And and by the way, that's a very common pattern, I think, a lot across a lot of cash transfer studies that you generally don't see too much impact on how much people are working overall, uh, maybe slight increases on average. But you do often see a lot of substitution away from working for somebody else and towards working for yourself. And the reason I think that's important to understand is that if you're used to thinking about a rich country labor market, Right. Most people work for somebody else. Right. And that somebody else, that corporation, sort of provides you with the tools that you need to do your job. You know, I get my computer from my employer, things like that, my office. Right. In low-income countries, a lot of people work for themselves. And a lot of people would work for themselves if they had were able to provide the tools they needed to do their job, right? Which might be the motorcycle or the livestock or the sewing machine or whatever it is. But you know, for them in an environment where there aren't a lot of other firms out there offering steady jobs. The big constraint is just being able to get the tools you need to work on your own account. And so I think that's a very common pattern in a lot of these cash transfer studies.
1: Is it at all like worrying that in rich countries, people are working for firms and this is making it so that more people are working for themselves and not getting the benefits of working for firms? Uh, Or do you see this as like part of a trajectory that ends up with people in these countries slowly getting wealthier? being more possible to create firms that actually work well and employ people and give them those benefits?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, the rich country part of that question is complex and it leads us down this path of like, what do we think about the gig economy and all that kind of stuff? So, but I think, you know, if we just think locally for people living in or near extreme poverty today, you know, a lot of them would love to get a steady job. That's very clear if you ask people. So a lot of people, you know, if, if that were an option, they would go for it. It isn't. And so what they have is, you know, the opportunity to work on their own account if they can uh, accumulate the tools, the capital that they need to do that. So, but you know, I think that is absolutely a big part of the development pathway. Is you know enough people creating businesses that are successful at a meaningful enough scale to be able to generate employment for other people in their community, and that is a big challenge for us when we think about you know as development economists because those are sort of rare events, right? So it's relatively easy to say, oh, here's the average impact on a bunch of families of doing something for them, but if what you really care about is like the one in a thousand people that is unleashed to then create a business that employs a bunch of others. That's so infrequent that, you know, the small change in the probability of that happening, we're often not able to detect in studies of the size that we're doing. And so so I think that, you you know, we can reason about that by saying, well, if you're at the average effects we see, then, you know, presumably that is gonna be helpful for, you know, whoever is the next Bill Gates or whoever it is, but it's hard to see that directly in the data. And that is a fundamental challenge.
1: Zooming out again to this general approach, My understanding is that basically all of the programs that USAID has compared to cash have ended up looking like cash outperforms those programs on most metrics. First off, is that right? Did I miss any important studies showing that the U.S. program was was a big improvement on cash? Uh,
0: I think that's right. It's obviously somewhat subjective. Different people might read things different ways. But I think generally speaking, that's the takeaway that most people have taken.
1: Yeah, I guess... I'm curious how USAID is reacting to that. In an ideal world, they might use these results to, I don't know, pivot to cash transfers or or maybe to figure out how to improve their existing programs to get better results. But part of me wonders if that's kind of unrealistic because at least... When I imagine being a USAID employee, I would just find that extremely demoralizing and would kind of just not be interested in comparing my programs anymore, at least at least on some gut level. And maybe I would muster the strength to kind of ignore that impulse. But has it changed the way they're spending money? Are they going to stop implementing some of the programs that look less effective than cash and and give cash instead?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think anybody should feel demoralized. You know, both because this is you know just fantastically valuable scientific knowledge, right? And we've done the thing that's ethically right and that's scientifically valuable, and that positions us to do more good, and that's great. So I think everybody should feel very proud of that. But then also, just very pragmatically, you know, you can look at this and say, I want to think about how to improve existing programs to try to catch up to that cash benchmark, and that's an interesting and important problem. Or you could say, no, I want to pivot to cash transfers. And, you know, I can tell you that also the design and implementation of cash transfer programming is a fun and difficult and challenging and rewarding thing to do. So, you know, there's still plenty of good work for everybody to do, regardless of how exactly you read the results. But, you know, in terms of how how things are moving forward, you know, USAID's obviously a a huge and complex organization, so there's no one answer to here's what USAID is doing. Sure. But, you know, GiveDirectly's done a bunch of work since that first project with USAID that I'm very excited about, Um, 13 additional projects across the world in different countries, including three additional benchmarking projects. And so I think it's been and seen as a a fruitful collaboration that's going to continue. And one thing in particular that I thought was sort of really neat is that USAID just put out uh, an RFP in Kenya Asking for proposals to address food security issues and saying very explicitly that there was going to be a benchmarking component included in the project in order to test effectiveness that we actually had nothing to do with, and so we were surprised we didn't know this until it came out. And so, you know, to me, that's sort of a good indication that people are saying, "Okay, this is useful, and let's you know kind of weave it into the way we normally do our work."
1: Yeah, I I feel very inspired if the thing that ends up happening is is there's a cultural shift at USAID and all of a sudden they're testing most of their programs against cash and hopefully something like if cash performs better, going for cash to achieve their goals. I'm still unclear on whether there have been any cases where, and maybe it's just too hard to say, but where USAID has scaled a program down and started implementing cash transfers instead.
0: Yeah, I don't have numbers in terms of how much is spent on these different program types to be able to tell you that? It's a great question. In fact, that's something I've generally found difficult as I've studied foreign aid, is that um, there's very little reporting in these kinds of categories that would be useful for understanding, you know, are we learning from the data? Things like that. Uh, That's not a issue that's unique to USA. That's true across the board.
1: Yeah, if it were the case that you know, these these kinds of aid agencies benchmarked a bunch of their programs uh, against cash, and cash in many cases outperformed those programs. Should these agencies basically just massively shrink and spend most of their budgets on, on unconditional cash transfers?
0: Well, I think you should spend a, a pretty sizable chunk of your budget on unconditional cash transfers. What that means for headcount, I don't know, because you also need people to design those programs and to make sure that they're well implemented. And that's, you know, that's not a trivial problem. Like right. directly has you know, 800 or so people globally who work on that on a daily basis. And so um, that's important too. But, but I think that, yes, you would shift a substantial share of the budget to cash transfers. And then you'd have a part of the budget that's allocated to, you know, hey, how can we find things that do better than cash transfers for some of these specific things where we think there is a strong reason for us to come in and push people and push an economy in a direction that's a bit different from where they would go on their own.
1: Yeah, I guess trying to kind of Find the best arguments against cash transfers being this kind of holy grail or benchmark. I guess GiveWell, the charity evaluator, thinks that Give Directly does less good per dollar than its top recommended charities. What's the case that people should give to Give Directly anyways?
0: Great. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think on the positive side, GiveWell also thinks that cash transfers are better than almost all things that they've looked at. But that's right. I mean, they, they, you know, and they've been, I think it's been great and very encouraging for me to see them sort of almost set their goal as like, let's try to find every year the few things that we think can do better than cash transfers. And that's very much the role that we want to be playing in the world, right, of sort of pushing people to do that. So, you know, if you get into the spreadsheets and the cost-effectiveness models and so forth, I think there are probably some things that I would do differently that might lead to a more favorable number for give directly. Um, you know, give, GiveWell hasn't yet taken into account uh, some of the indirect impacts of transfers, not just on the people who get them, but on other people in the community. Which you know, I think based on some of the work we've done, can be quite large. I think there can be a significant economic stimulus effect. So, you know, that might make. A degree of difference. Um, as I said before, I would personally, as a donor, put a significant weight on autonomy and sort of individual freedom per se, you know, even setting aside whatever economic value I place on the way people use that autonomy. So I think that would be a big one. But I think the core thing is really that Gibwell's question of, you know, if I had a modest amount of money to allocate, where could I get the highest returns, is somewhat different from the question we're asking, which is, how can we improve the quality of the average aid dollar, looking at these huge budgets that are spent globally. And so a big part of the rationale for giving through directly is, yes, you get the direct impacts today on the person who received them, but we're also part of this movement to change the sector as a whole and to raise the bar for everything else. Um, And that's what the USAID benchmarking projects are about, for example. And so, of course, it's very difficult to attribute, but I think the conversation about cash transfers, the acceptance of them, the idea that we should think of them as a first option has really changed in the last decade. And GiveDirectly has certainly played some role in that, although not the exclusive role.
1: Yep. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, and we'll actually come back to spillover effects in a little bit. But yeah, before we do, I've also seen GiveDirectly proponents argue that GiveDirectly can absorb more funding than other top world charities because kind of cash is more scalable than other anti-poverty interventions. Yeah, can you explain why that is?
0: Yeah, there are two dimensions to this. There's scalability of implementation. And then there's scalability of relevance or of impact, if you will. So I want to talk through both of those things in turn because they're both important, both very different. The implementation is just like, can we do it? And for cash transfers, we know for sure the answer is yes, we can do this at enormous scale because there are already, you know, a couple billion people in low-income countries around the world that have received cash transfers of some sort, typically from a government program, right? So directly is seen as very, you know, brazen and unorthodox and novel by Western donors, but actually... In low income countries themselves, cash transfers are very common. It's usually a core part of most governments' anti poverty strategy. And they reach a lot of people. And they scaled very quickly as well during the pandemic, for example, right? When most countries put in place restrictions on mobility and then at the same time said, we really have to get support to people quickly. And so they turned in a big way to cash transfers. There are some really cool examples of that as well that sort of illustrate scalability at speed, like the project in Togo, which the government did in conjunction with Give Directly, where they did everything by a mobile phone, right, without ever having to put boots on the ground to interact with people. So so you have some of these really neat examples. So the first point is, like, we could get money to essentially everybody living in extreme poverty. And that's not necessarily true of some of the other interventions that would be harder work, slower, I think, to reach that kind of scale. But the second point is about scalability of relevance or of impact. And so I think a very concrete way to think about this is you think about some very high-impact things like deworming medication, right? That's going to have a huge impact in areas where baseline worm loads are high. And so there are a lot of people that are getting sick. And it's not going to do anything in places where worms are not a problem, where baseline worm loads are low. So it's a great thing to use in the places where we can get these outsized returns. But it's not a sort of general solution to the problem of getting people up out of poverty. It's a sort of narrow, very high return thing. We should absolutely exploit it. But if we want to think about the big problem of how do we get everybody out of extreme poverty, then I think cash transfers really are the only thing that you can expect to be relevant at that sort of scale in the sense that we could expect to continue to see the kinds of positive impacts that you've seen across the whole swath of people that you want to try to reach.
1: Yeah, this is a bit of a digression, but that makes me curious about the extent to which cash transfers kind of vary in different regions um, in their effectiveness. Do we see that across studies?
0: We, you know, I've been looking into this, in fact, in the last couple of weeks. I don't think that there are well-designed, well-powered comparisons yet. I'm sure the answer is true intuitively, you know, just so, you know, in the sense that, like, there's so much regional variation in what people do with their money on average, right, and what the opportunities are and what people want. But, um, but you know, I don't think that's actually been tested. So, But it depends on how, how small the categories are, right? So if I look at, you know, sort of how many people buy a metal roof— there will be region to region heterogeneity in that. If I look at the broader question of, like, to what extent did people invest in housing or in durable goods or things like that, at that level, I think we'll expect to see more homogeneity.
1: Yeah, I guess getting back to potential counter arguments, my sense is that GiveWell's view is basically that in deciding whether to donate to give directly, now or wait and see what comes along. Uh, In some cases, it's better to wait because they think they'll be able to identify more promising things. Uh, What's your take on that position?
0: Uh, You know, broadly, go for it. That's great. We want GiveWell to go out there and try to find the best things they can. So if they sort of view finding things that be cash as a good way to think about the problem and they want to go, you know, that's what we want them to do. So I think that's great. We've always sort of seen our goal as providing a challenge function or a hurdle. I, I do think, though, there is a sort of question of breadth, right? So if a small group of EAs who um, you know sort of read GiveWell posts in detail decide they want to wait. That might or might not be a good strategy. If the entire world decided to just wait, and you know the kind of couple hundred billion dollars a year that we spend every year on development, were to just kind of sit in a bank account and do nothing, I think that would be a tragedy. And so um, we want to be careful about the scope of the advice. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that makes sense of sense. It reminds me of what my colleague calls the rule of equal and opposite advice, where some some group needs one piece of advice and another needs the opposite. And in this case, maybe there are some people who will think about this so carefully that they'll find opportunities that beat cash. But if we're talking to a large enough audience, a lot of them should probably be trying to fill this cash gap.
0: That's very well said. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about this possibility of big positive spillovers that you mentioned. So, one question some people have about GiveDirectly is around whether it's kind of a band-aid for people living in poverty in that it kind of helps them meet their basic needs for a few months or even years, or whether it can actually lift people and communities out of poverty indefinitely by jumpstarting local economies. And if I understand correctly, you helped run the study looking at this question by looking at what's called the general equilibrium effects of cash transfers. So, just to start, can you explain what general equilibrium effects are and and why they're so important to answering the broader question about the value of GiveDirectly's work?
0: Yeah, but let me um first just say a word about the framing of the question sure. because I think this notion of like lifting people up out of poverty is very pervasive and very alluring, right? That that's obviously something we would all love to be a part of and help to do. But I want to make sure that we're all starting from the facts, which are that by and large, people have been getting out of extreme poverty at a pretty rapid rate on their own, right? There's no doubt that rates of extreme poverty have fallen dramatically. You know, COVID was a significant setback for sure, but kind of setting COVID aside, the global poverty gap, right, the amount by which people living in poverty are below the line has shrunk dramatically over the years. And so I think it's better to frame the question for us as like, what can we do to accelerate that? as opposed to what can we do to lift people up out of extreme poverty? Because the latter sort of leads to this mindset of like, oh, they're just going to stay stuck there forever unless we figure out the solution. And that's just clearly counterfactual. That's just not the case. So having said that, what do we mean by uh, general equilibrium? So what economists mean by general equilibrium is that, you know, sort of one person's actions have broader ripple effects and ramifications on other people through the economy, right? Because we live in this interconnected system. And if we do a study where we just look at what happens when one household gets money and another doesn't, and we compare the two, we might see differences between those two households in terms of what stuff they have or how they behave or spend their time. But we aren't picking up those broader impacts. What does that all mean for the rest of society, right? And I think with cash transfers, the most obvious example to think about to make this very concrete is that whenever people get cash transfers, they use them to transact. So there's somebody else that they go out and they buy food or they buy an asset, or maybe they even put money in a savings account. That actually rarely happens. But Whatever it is that they do, there's some counterparty to that transaction. And so it's sort of almost mechanical that that counterparty is going to be affected, at least to some extent, by it. And that means if we want to think about the total consequence of the transfers, we want to take that into account. And that could also be true for other things as well, right? There are lots of things that we do to help people that could have these kinds of broader impacts. But I think for cash transfers, it's especially mechanical or obvious, right, that that has to be the case because people are going to go out and use the money.
1: Right. So the effect is clearly not just the effect to, to these recipients, because unless they're all just saving the money and not spending it, that cash ends up getting transferred a bunch of times from one person to another as they make purchases. And so uh, if you just measure the benefits to the recipient, uh, you miss out on the benefits to the person who makes metal roofs who who just got a bunch more business and now their life is improved as well. And so this study is basically not looking at individual recipients alone and is trying to do this, like, how is this community or how is this region affected? Yeah, if we if we zoom out, is that am I basically getting that right?
0: That's mostly right. Yeah. The only thing to adjust is that even the saving, right, depending on how you save is going to affect. So so, so if you put if you put money into a bank account, that affects somebody else because that money becomes available, you know, through our system of financial intermediation. It becomes capital for somebody else to borrow and invest You know, the one case in which you might save and it literally does nothing is if you take the money and stuff it under a mattress, (laughs) um, which, you know, generally doesn't seem to be what happens. But, you know, unless you do that, like it's like, yeah, it's going to have some impact somehow on somebody else.
1: This sounds incredibly difficult to study. How do you do it? What's the study set up?
0: Yeah, we do it imperfectly, but um, I think it's still a, a significant advance on what we knew or were able to do beforehand. So it's actually a general issue in sort of economic analysis of impacts. Um, and, and we've made enormous progress, right, in the last 20 years. And the, the Nobel Prize in 2019 for the leaders of that movement are very well deserved. But, but one of the things that's very hard is that to see these kind of like system level or economy level impacts, it's not entirely clear how to do it. What we do in this study is we do an experiment, but we do an experiment at a larger scale where the units that are getting allocated or assigned to treatment and to control are bigger. So instead of picking some households and saying, okay, these households are going to get money, these aren't, we're picking some villages and saying, okay, everybody eligible in these villages will get money, and those eligible in these other villages will not. And we're even doing it at a slightly larger scale because in the part of Kenya where we work, we take sort of sublocations, which are administrative units, and say in some of these sublocations, we're going to treat two-thirds of the villages, and in others, we're going to treat one-thirds. Of the village. So all of this generates a lot of like more aggregate variation in how many of the people around you have been treated, as well as whether or not you got treated yourself with cash transfers. And so the essential idea in the study is to use that spatial variation to learn something about these indirect effects. I mean, what we do concretely, which is is actually very simple, is we take each person, we draw a two-kilometer ring around them, and then we say, let's look at your outcomes as a function both of whether you yourself got a transfer, and also the share of people within that two-kilometer ring that were eligible that got a transfer. And that's it.
1: Great. Yep, that is simple. Okay, and then you give the cash based on who who the study determines gets the cash, and then you wait some period of time. I imagine it's some number of months or years.
0: There's actually a range, and that's important, because what you'd really like to understand is not like a single snapshot of like what did life look like 18 months later. But like, how did life develop, right? Because we care about all of those 18 months, and we care about the next 18 months and all that, right? So um, we make a little bit of progress on that in this study, you know, in that the timing of the surveys was varied a fair bit. And so we have some surveys that were run fairly shortly after the transfers went out, some that were much longer. And so we can sort of integrate across that whole time period. And, you know, just to be very open, like, we should have done more of that. In fact, as we kind of sat back and analyzed the data, we're like, boy, if we had it to do over, we would do even more of that. But But we have enough to be able to say, hey, let's like integrate over this whole time period after transfers go out and say like on average over that time period, what sorts of impacts are we seeing on the economy in terms of people's incomes, their standards of living, uh, their spending and so forth.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so you get this kind of full, more detailed picture of like what is happening over the years after this happens. So um, the headline result is that for every $1 spent on cash transfers, there's a 2.5 multiplier effect. Can you explain exactly what a multiplier means here?
0: Yeah. So it's a very simple concept. All it means is if we measure GDP, essentially, sort of the aggregate output of this economy, how much did GDP go up for every dollar that we gave people? And so a one would be, you know, sort of people spent the money and nothing else happened. A 2.5 here means that for every dollar that we put in, economic output in the region expanded by two and a half dollars.
1: Okay, and again, um, I studied a bit of economics, but not loads of economics. So it's basically, you know, if I try to make it really concrete, it's like you give someone one dollar and the fact that they then spend that dollar ends up somehow generating two point five dollars in the economy because of something like it enables someone to do a bit more work, which then allows them to. I guess, create more goods and those goods have value and are purchased. And over time, uh, you get a basically $2.50 of extra of extra value. Is that the basic thing?
0: That's the basic thing.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. I understand what a multiplier is. Can you help me make intuitive the, the number 2.5? Is that really big? Is that moderate? I, I guess I just don't have a have a good reference class for like how... Quickly, economies grow, and whether this is like uh, an impressive result or not.
0: Yeah, I think there are probably two ways to think about that. One is relative to other estimates of the multiplier effects, sort of public spending or stimulus spending. And so, you know, in in sort of rich countries like in the U.S., for example, the range of estimates of people I think typically are centered around are in the you know one point five to one point nine or two range. And so, this is you know bigger than that, but not wildly bigger. Than the sort of stimulus effects that we think federal spending in the U.S. can have if it is well-designed. The other way to think about it is just, you know, as a donor, I suppose. Like, if you're thinking about the, the consequences of this, then if you buy the analysis, then you think that in this setting, a dollar had sort of 2.5 the impacts that you thought it would have had otherwise, right? Without taking that into account.
1: Yeah, okay, that makes sense.
0: And, and one thing to emphasize is that, you know, we're talking here about economic output. And that's not the same thing as people's well-being. Sure. And so we want to be very careful about that. You know, in the paper we talk about some very basic points, like, hey, you know, if output went up, but it was because a bunch of people were working longer hours and they had less time to spend with their families, there's some trade offs there that we want to take into account, right? Now, in this case, it seems like that's actually not the case, as best we can tell, but uh, we do want to kind of emphasize that point that you shouldn't think of a 2.5 GDP multiplier as being like a 2.5 well-being multiplier without some more careful scrutiny.
1: Totally. And so do you then have as an outcome well-being, not just kind of among recipients, but somehow within kind of other community members?
0: I know. I heard the well pitch recently. So I don't know. Maybe we should have done that. But no, we didn't. I mean, we sort of think about well-being as economists typically do, which is in terms of the uh, sort of equivalent income, like, you know, how much I think about how the world has changed, you know, what would be the equivalent change in just my income that to me would be just as good as that set of changes in the world so so we do that exercise in the paper and you know the bottom line there is that because we don't see a lot of changes in these other things like how many hours people are working we do think that 2.5 is actually a pretty good uh, figure for sort of thinking about welfare and not just GDP. Right. Um, but I still want to emphasize the point that they're not the same.
1: Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if you saw something like leisure time dropping dramatically, and it sounds like you didn't measure something like stress, but that's the kind of thing that you'd be worried about. And to the best that you've measured so far, it doesn't seem like this thing is happening where people's lives are getting more miserable because they're overworked. Instead, those metrics aren't really changing. And it just seems like G- GDP is going up, anyways.
0: Right. And I sort of like that topic, actually, because I think many people have sort of the opposite instinct that they're like, no, no, we want we want to get people living in poverty to work more, which I think is a little weird and I feel very uncomfortable about. But I think, a lot, you know, a lot of people feel that way. Right. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting list.
1: Yeah. So to make sure I understand kind of what this really looks like in practice, do you have a sense of who is benefiting besides the recipients? Is it business owners in the communities, other communities, other poor households, wealthy households? We
0: do a bit, but not a lot. And so what I mean by that is the way the study was designed, you know, Give Directly had decided that some households in these villages would be eligible for transfers, you know, based on indicators of their poverty status and others would not. And so we measure data for both those groups and we can look at impacts on both of those groups. And in fact, the impacts look pretty similar on a lot of the outcomes across the two of them. And that's one of the big surprises and maybe sort of an indicator that these indirect effects can be very big, right? That we see uh, increases in standards of living for the ineligible guys that did not get money that are of a similar size as the impacts on the eligible guys. I had that question specifically about, you know, is this business owners? And we actually have a second paper that looks in much more detail at the targeting of the transfers. And as part of that, we asked specifically, like, hey, can we say anything predictively about for whom the impacts are greatest? Um, and among those non recipients, we really can't, is the answer. And some of that may be because we just don't have enough data, you know, by sort of the standards of an RCT, we have enormous amounts of data. By the standards of machine learning, we have a trivial amount of data. And so we may just need more. But there isn't sort of a big obvious pattern that jumps out where it's like, oh, it's the business owners who are seeing increased revenue. So I do think that's part of the channel. But then I think there are like various ways in which that then gets passed along. So, you know, the business owners who employ people pay higher wages, for example, we see that. And so I think because there are enough of these ways in which things percolate, it ends up being spread out pretty evenly. Mm -hmm.
1: Cool. Yeah, that is interesting. And I I also find it surprising that the benefits are kind of equal. I guess one concern I've heard raised about GiveDirectly's model is that there's this worry that so much of kind of well-being and welfare comes from comparing yourself to others. And yeah, so I've heard this concern that if some group of non-recipients starts noticing that there's another group who's gotten cash and they're able to raise their standard of living, that first group that didn't get anything will will be, in terms of well-being, worse off because they no longer are like, I've got it pretty good. Now they're like, the world's not fair. I, I didn't get that transfer. And also, like, I'm not doing relatively as well as I used to be in, in this community. Do you look for evidence of that? Um, do you have intuitions about it?
0: Yeah, I think this is like a good, an important question. Um, you know, in this case, we look at impacts on the measures of subjective well-being of the ineligibles and we're not seeing negative effects there. So in that sense, you know, and I think that probably that's partly because economically they're also benefiting to a, a great extent here. I think this question is like, not really so much a question about cash transfers per se, and more a question about how we allocate whatever it is that we're giving out, whether it's cash transfers or food or livestock or anything, that we're thoughtful about doing it in a way that communities perceive as being reasonable and well justified. There are you know, good examples of studies that find that programs that were not targeted in a thoughtful way, in a way that was seen as fair, um, gave rise to tension and conflict and jealousy and bitterness in communities. So you know absolutely, that can happen. And I think there's also an issue in the design of experiments where if you design it in such a way that like two people who live next to each other, you know very saliently, one of them got lucky and the other one didn't. That's not a great experience. And that's one of the reasons why we've been pushing towards it give directly. Let's do these experiments at a larger scale. so it's not like two neighbors, but like different villages. Um, so there are some like important and difficult trade-offs to think through there in terms of the ethics of designing experiments. Which you know is maybe a longer conversation, but uh, but those are the issues I'd be thinking about, whether it's cash transfers or anything else.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I really like this idea of randomizing by at the at the village level and not the individual level because it it does make sense to me that you'll get less of this problem if all of the eligible people in a given area get the benefit. I guess could could it be the thing that's happening is that the additional cash. You know, people people spend it, but it actually ends up driving prices up for everyone such that people aren't actually better off in a meaningful sense.
0: Right. Theoretically, that's entirely possible. You know, you can imagine an extreme case where, like, if I went and gave a bunch of money to, to you know, a Robinson Crusoe, you know, a little island where there are just a couple of people, right, that's going to do nothing to increase their productive capacity. And so it doesn't seem like it should do anything other than drive up prices. So that was one of the core goals of the study, to measure that. We see uh, significant increases on prices that are very, very small. So a sort of couple of fractions of a percentage point, you know, relative to transfers that amounted to about 15% of GDP. So sort of very, very small relative to the amount of money flowing into these economies, which was big. We have some stuff in the paper about why that is.
1: Yeah, I'd love it if you could talk me through uh, what you found there.
0: So I I think it's partly because we're working in a region that is pretty well integrated with the outside world. It's sort of on the main road that runs from uh, the coast through Nairobi inland towards Uganda. And uh, so connectivity is pretty good. But the other big factor is that, you know, we think that this is a setting in which there's also just a lot of underutilized capacity. And the prototypical thing here would be you have a little business that serves people in your community. And these guys, you know, we count. I think they see an average of two and a half customers a day. So that could be like a retail business or maybe you have a grain mill where you grind people's grain or whatever it is. And so what that means is that you could actually do a lot more if you just had more customers, right? if there are more people that wanted to buy your thing, because you can certainly serve more than two and a half customers a day. And so I think that's also an important factor. And that, that's economically very interesting and exciting because that issue of underutilized capacity is one that's been hard to study, but that especially in these like lower density rural areas, I think is is actually quite important. So there have been a few other studies that have found larger price effects in sort of very remote parts of other countries so like in remote parts of Mexico for example you can get larger impacts on prices so so it sort of can happen but my sense is that from the you know what we've seen as a whole in most cases there hasn't been too much of that price pressure.
1: Cool, cool. Yeah, that reminds me, I was curious about another finding of the paper, which is that you you somehow get this 2.5 multiplier effect, but there aren't corresponding increases in kind of the employment of land or capital or labor, at least kind of as as measured. How, how do you explain that? Is it primarily the slack capacity thing where, where people have capacity that they're not using because these economies are small and people aren't kind of buying every tin roof that someone could plausibly make because they don't have the funds? And and these are again small communities. Is it that? Is it something else? Is it is it many things?
0: Yeah, that's 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 right. That's the core, our interpretation of the data. There, you know, there are some increases in those things. You know, there is a, maybe a little bit of an increase in labor hours, although it's not significantly different from zero. There is a significant reallocation of labor hours away from wage employment towards self employment, like as I mentioned before. And so, yeah. you know, if people are more productive in one of those things than the other. There's going to be some increase that comes from that. You know, if you look at some categories of sort of capital investment, there are increases. Uh, You don't see a lot of like fixed capital investment, like people building new structures, but uh, businesses have larger inventories. Uh But those increases in inventories are not big relative to the increases in output that we're seeing. So, you know, it sort of seems like, yeah, there's probably some of this that is just like more utilization of uh, of labor and of of capital. But a lot of it, I think, is uh, actually sort of more utilization of the stuff that was already employed, but just underutilized.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the multiplier effect is 2.5x, the $1. And intuitively, I have this reaction that's like, if a lot of how you explain that isn't like people are able to um, farm more land, it's more of this thing where people weren't working as much as they could with the resources they had before. Now they're kind of utilizing those resources better or something because they previously there was like, not enough demand for them to like fully utilize the resources they already had. Intuitively, I find it kind of surprising that just that, that kind of slack capacity being used up is a big enough deal to, to create this 2.5 multiplier economic effect. But maybe slack capacity, kind of the insufficient use of of people's time and inventories that they already have is just such a big deal in these economies that it, that it it is intuitive to you that it could drive an effect this big
0: yeah it's a good question you know i think that as a point of reference it might be helpful to start with the u.s macro literature on this so there are a lot of people that sort of try to look at when the u.s government spends money you know how much does that stimulate the economy and so there's a range of estimates but i think the sort of Pretty good sort of sense of the variety that most people believe right now would be in the range of 1.5 to 2x for various forms of government spending, and there's some differences. You know, government spends money in the U.S. differently from a bit different from a cash transfer. But you know, with that as a reference point, like yeah, getting 2.5 in a much more rural, low-density area where I think there probably is a lot more underutilized capacity doesn't feel like at all, uh, you know, super surprising. Yep.
1: Okay. Does that maybe mean the benefits of this kind of approach might be somewhat limited to contexts where uh, you've got smaller rural communities that end up with this this particular issue and that you wouldn't get the same benefit in a in a super urban area where there's, there's a big enough population that there's enough demand to kind of use up slack capacity.
0: Yeah, I mean, that would certainly be my intuition. I think that would be a very useful thing to test. You know, that said, if you think that maybe like the U.S. economy is like one end of a spectrum and rural Kenya is at another end of the spectrum, then maybe urban areas in Kenya or the low-income countries, perhaps they lie somewhere in between I think would not be a crazy prior to have as well. So, you know, that would be my best guess if I had to guess. I think it's going to be very hard to test. You know, it's hard to imagine doing a study like the one we did where you take the spatial approach and then taking that to a city where I think space is much less of a constraint. Things are much more dense spatially. So I don't know if we're going to have a good answer to that question anytime soon. But but if I had to guess, I would, I would bound it with those two data points.
1: So how long do you expect this benefit to last? Do you expect it to peter out or or could it drive kind of indefinite growth?
0: So I thought that the estimated effects would fade out over time, not so much because I think the economic impacts are going to fade out, but because I think that the treatment effects are going to keep spreading out through the economy. And so over time, the control group is going to get more and more treated. And eventually there won't really be a meaningful distinction anymore between the two.
1: It's like, People will keep buying other things, services, goods, and at some point people will buy other things from the control villages and then those control villages will start getting the benefits that originally the treatment villages were meant to be getting. And that'll just happen more and more because economies are complicated and over time as that happens everyone will kind of equalize out
0: that's exactly it. And we are picking that up to some extent because we are looking at people in those control villages and saying, hey, was there an impact on this person as a function of how many of their neighbors were treated? But I think the ability of that design statistically to sort of pick this up, I expect it to sort of fade out over time. Yeah, You know, things that are pushing against that are that, you know, there may be you know, that sort of important forms of increasing returns here where, you know, if one village gets off to a good start, that attracts in, crowds in other people, other capital. And so it really kind of puts that village or that community on a permanently or sort of long-term, somewhat different trajectory. So that is also kind of conceptually a possibility. The team that I did this with is, you know, I'm not a PI on this part of the study, but the team is doing follow-up work on this. I think they're going to have results out fairly soon. You know, verbally what they're telling me is that they're seeing some really interesting results and sort of continued differences, which is a bit different from what I would have predicted for the reasons we described. Wow. But we have to wait and let them tell that story when they're ready.
1: Fair enough. I guess, can you tell the difference between something like... The effect being kind of diffused across treatment and control groups and the effect just disappearing because, yeah, whatever whatever the good thing that's happening is dissipates and you you actually just lose it.
0: I don't think so. Okay. I know people would love me to say, you know, for there to be an answer to that problem. Yeah. I think it's a fundamental issue, right? The kind of the essence of the experimental idea is for there to be somebody who's unaffected that we can use as a counterfactual and say that's what life would have been like for Paul if this treatment hadn't happened. And if you believe that the world is very interconnected and that over time sort of things ripple out and affect everybody, then that's just yeah. not true. So
1: I understand the intuitive story for how these effects kind of keep spreading and it gets harder to measure, but we think they're still there. What's the intuitive story for how they just disappear? Economically disappear, disappear in a meaningful sense, not just like the your ability to measure them stops.
0: Yeah, I think it would be, you know, first, to some extent, people have spent some of the money on things that improve their life today, but that don't have long-term impacts. And I I think that's that's fine. I support them doing that, but that would be one part. The second is that the things they have invested in, you know, the impacts of those things fade out over time. You know, the assets they've purchased deteriorate and the additional income they've made from them or the additional benefits they've earned from them for whatever reason they've chosen not to reinvest in maintaining them or replacing them or things like that, things like that.
1: So overall, this just seems like a really exciting study. It suggests that you might actually be able to help very unproductive, isolated economies where lots of people are living in poverty kind of jumpstart economic growth through just giving people cash. I have the intuition that a lot of people will find this sounds too good to be true. Do you buy it on a very gut level?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's out of line with, you know, as we said before, with studies that have been done in other contexts. Although it's the first time we've been able to do this experimentally, and that that is sort of a big advance and kind of increases my confidence in the results. You know, I think it's also sort of in line with general thinking about a lot of other stuff that happens during the process of growth. Sort of the role of demand, of purchasing power, and sort of stimulating parts of the economy is a pretty classic idea. It's not something that we've been able to study experimentally with RCTs, but... It's a, a core part of the way we think about the process of development that, you know, in some cases that may be important. So
1: Cool. And I guess if you, if you had to give a best guess for why, you know, you, you replicate the study in another context um, and, and you don't see a multiplier nearly as big, what's your best guess for why that might be?
0: Yeah, I think we could totally find a place where, you know, in fact, capacity was very highly utilized. And so you get, you know, a bit more than a dollar per dollar benefit, but not a lot more. Um, I think that would be that would be totally plausible.
1: Okay, so we have, I guess, some reason to think that cash transfers can lead to some GDP growth um, and that it's kind of non-trivial. But if you're trying to do as much as possible to increase economic growth in a poor country kind of per dollar spent, do you think cash transfers would end up being among the most cost-effective ways to do that?
0: I think they'd be a big part of the mix. So there are certainly things that you need from the public sector, right? You need investment in infrastructure, roads and things like that you know, for which you need public intervention. And, you know, we've actually had some people who've received conventional transfers who have pooled resources to build a road. So there's some sort of local capacity, fitting for communities to actually create public goods like that on a small scale. But, so you know, nobody's saying there should be none of that. But I think there's also an enormous amount of private investment that's needed. And the evidence says cash transfers can be a very good way both to finance that investment and also to motivate it, right, by creating demand where there wasn't a lot of demand before.
1: Sure. Yeah, okay. It seems like a lot of the stories that we have about low-income countries developing and becoming higher-income countries has to do with kind of shifting out of subsistence agriculture and into kind of higher productivity sectors like manufacturing and services, often because they've m- people have migrated to more urban areas or at least into kind of larger scale, more professional and productive agriculture. Do we have any evidence that cash transfers contribute to that kind of urbanization process?
0: Yeah, uh, certainly to the structural change that you mentioned. So if you look at the results from the GE study that we've been talking about, for example, you know, the economy to begin with is, you know, going to be majority agricultural. The expansion that we see in response to the transfers is, is entirely concentrated in retail and small scale manufacturing. And so it's exactly that pattern that you see which, again, I think is partly investment-led, but largely demand-led in this setting. So we haven't been seeing a lot of people moving to the cities, which was something that I thought could happen. If anything, and I think we'll see more on this as some of the longer-term follow-ups from these studies come out, you're seeing people moving into these communities. From other communities because they're becoming, you know, larger hubs of economic activity. So, you know, I think there is a bit of that spatial agglomeration that's part of the process, but maybe not quite in the way that we expected. We're getting densification, but in a different place than perhaps we expected.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Okay, let's push on to another topic. So, GiveDirectly has written publicly a few times about kind of fraud and theft of Give Directly funds. And so in 2021, there was a blog post about fraud and theft kind of across programs globally. And I think in total, that added up to something like $250,000 for the year. But then also just this year, there's a single case of major theft of just under a million dollars in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So these are two pretty different cases where the kind of The $250,000 figure reflects a bunch of very small, isolated incidents of fraud and theft across kind of different programs. And then this DRC case is this like big, single theft case. And I want to talk about both of them. But let's start with the smaller, kind of more common cases first. Can you start by talking me through just a typical case of fraud or theft?
0: Sure. You know, there's a variety, you know, fraud and theft are, you know, a normal part of a business, in sort of what we do and something that we have to be always dealing with, always thinking about, always staying a step ahead of. And so there's a variety of different things, you know, which, by the way, is pretty similar to other businesses I've started in, in sort of payments, you know, where it worked, you know, to lose a percent or so to chargebacks on debit cards that people use that turn out to be fraudulent. It'd be pretty normal. a cost of doing business. So, you know, we have to think about it as a cost of doing business. We have to control it, keep it low and think about trade-offs. So the sorts of things that we would typically worry about might be, you know, somebody going into a community working for us to enroll recipients and instead enrolling friends and family members instead of the kinds of people that they're looking for. Right, right. Or somebody going into a community enrolling the people that they're supposed to enroll, but also asking them to then kick back some of the money to them and maybe having the story around that uh, in terms of, you know, you're getting this because of me or you're not going to get it if you don't agree to share the benefits with me to some extent. Those would be sort of pretty typical day-to-day risks that we worry about police.
1: Yeah, okay. And just to get a sense of kind of the magnitude, um, so how common that is, can you put the $250,000 figure in context? I guess just what percent of the overall funds give directly intends to deliver are lost through this kind of theft, bribery, or imposter kind of thing?
0: Yeah, so for that year, I think 2021, when we did that recap, I think that represented 10 to 20 bips or so of what we moved. And that's a number that we, you know, you... You always want it to be zero, but at the same time, if you say it's going to be zero, the problem with that is that uh, then people don't discover it and report it. So, you know, there's a sense in which that's a number that I'm happy with, if that makes sense. Although I realize that may sound a little weird.
1: No, no, I I, I can see the logic. Yeah, I wanna I wanna ask more about. <laughs> whether that might actually be the right number or what even is the right number, if not zero. But first, can you say a bit about how you do work to prevent it or investigate it? And I guess in some cases, you're able to rectify it by recovering the funds.
0: Yeah, I can say a bit. I'm also actually not going to go into an enormous amount of detail because part of the point is to always stay a step ahead and so, you know, some of the things we do, we, we, we intentionally don't want to disclose. So sure. But, you know, it, 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 as with most of these things, there's a core principle of checks and balances and separation of powers. So the person who goes out and has that initial interaction with the recipient is not the same person who then subsequently goes back and back checks. With that recipient and that's different from the person who's available by phone to talk to a recipient if something isn't working or they're having problems or who's placing outbound calls to the recipient and that's also separate from our own internal audit team which we have a function to do that so there's a separation of powers principle there's multiple people looking at any one of these things so that there is scrutiny from different angles and you know there are certainly things you can do with data and with automation to look for irregularities and patterns that are powerful as well oh cool Um, but those are core principles
1: yeah. Is there an example of the data patterny thing that doesn't, I don't know, risk someone figuring it out and working around it that you can share?
0: Yeah, I think that one will hold off on
1: Okay, fair enough. For, fair for enough. that reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But suffice
0: it to say that there's a lot of transaction data generated and they'll be look at it carefully. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I am interested in this question of how much you should accept in terms of yeah, how much you're willing to lose for this particular reason. Two hundred and fifty thousand I don't know, it seems high. It also doesn't seem that high. How do you think about whether to invest more in preventing this from happening more often or invest less? Because maybe those final cases of fraud are actually just like extremely hard to notice and and you shouldn't bother.
0: It's all case by case, as you'd imagine. So, you know, to give you one concrete example, one thing that we did in the early days as a way of checking that we were finding the kinds of households we want was we're using satellite imagery. And so the idea was we were working at that time in places where having a thatched roof was a pretty good indicator of being poor. And so we were trying to target households that had a thatched roof. And we said, hey, this is great because we can see that from the satellite imagery. And so if we get GPS coordinates from our field teams, then we can go back and plug those in and you know look at the images and see if there is indeed a thatched roof there. And if there isn't, then but that can trigger an audit. right? And so we'll follow up and double check on that. And so that seemed like a sort of cool thing to do. And in fact, I think it was, it was a like, lovely talking point. Right? We we're giving pitches about directly. It just turns out the, the false positive rate there is extremely high. So we were triggering a lot of back checks and audits, which when we went out, you know, almost never found anything untoward. And so eventually we said, "Hey, this sounds cool, but actually the numbers are bad, so we cut it. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the work looks like a series of case-by-case incremental tests and adjustments as you figure out which things are actually catching things at a high rate and which are not.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like the kind of overall picture is like there is fraud and theft. It amounts to about two hundred fifty thousand a year, um, or at least it didn't in twenty twenty one. And it turns out that's actually not something terrible. That's like about what you'd expect given the amount of resources that makes sense to kind of invest in making sure it doesn't happen more. Let's talk about what happened in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is GiveDirectly's biggest fraud case to date. Can you give just the kind of basic outline?
0: Sure. Um, And, you know, let me first just say, you know, I think we've written very publicly about this. um, And so I'll talk about, you know, what we think we've learned from it, how we think we should interpret it in the big picture. But, you know, it is absolutely gut wrenching to sort of lose that much money. And uh, it's something, you know, where we feel like we, we failed here. And then we owe an apology to the folks involved, to the recipients and to our partners in this project. And, and so we've done that and done that very publicly. And I think that's important. In terms of what it means for the mission and the model overall, we feel like there are things we have to learn and adjust. It's going to be about, you know, less than a percent of all the money that we delivered in 2022. And so, you know, we accept that this is a chess game that never ends, that we're still playing it and that we have to make adjustments. But fundamentally, I don't think it shakes our confidence, you know, and our ability to keep doing uh what we do. So With that having been said, you know, what happens specifically in the DRC is, and you know, as you can imagine, there are multiple layers to this. But the uh, sort of first and fundamental thing is that we have a control procedure that we usually impose, which says that when we give a SIM card to recipients, which is what they need to then be able to start receiving transfers, they need to go and register that with a mobile money agent themselves. And so that's an important piece of our control process. And we made an exception to that in the DRC because the DRC is a tough place to work and we thought this would have meant long travel and potentially some risks for recipients. And so we decided to give our field staff permission to register those SIM cards themselves in the name of the recipients and then distribute them. And so we're balancing risk and return there in terms of thinking about how this is going to impact recipients and what the risk would be. And, you know, the core lesson from this is going to be that, you know, we got that wrong and have to change that. This time around, the issue this created was that in this case, some of our staff were able to register SIMs in the name of recipients, but then keep them and instead give recipients other SIMs that were useless because they were not registered in our system to receive transfers. And so with those SIMs in hand, staff are then able to go and collude with mobile money agents to withdraw cash from the accounts that belong to the recipients and get it out themselves. There are then multiple other accountability layers in the system that could have caught this and that did eventually catch it, but that took too long in part because the people who were stealing money at that point of sale were uh, able to recruit accomplices in those other layers. And so I net this went on for about four months from the end of August 2022 to January of 2023 before we caught it. You know, the design question for us now is of course we want to catch it sooner than that if something like this ever happened again.
1: Okay, so it was something like The people who were registering The Sims realized that at some point, maybe someone on something like an auditing team would notice that, maybe because people would complain, like, "I'm I'm not getting the money that I was supposed to be getting. But the people doing the theft were able to, I guess, recruit people on the auditing team, basically because they could give them a share of the money, I guess. And because of that, those additional checks didn't work. Is that is that kind of the picture? Are there details I'm missing?
0: Yes, that's right. They didn't work soon enough, you know, or as soon as we would like them. They did work eventually. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, multiple types of audits. So there is a, the internal audit team that I mentioned. There are in-person checks. There is a call center placing outbound calls. There are also people there who are receiving calls. And so if a recipient calls in and says, hey, I was expecting money and it hasn't shown up yet, you know, what's wrong? That should trigger a flag. Those things all just took too long to trigger because uh, folks have been able to recruit accomplices in some of those other teams.
1: Got it. Got it. How is it finally um, resolved? Who figured it out?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, for some safeguarding reasons, I can't get too much into the details of like what's happened and what is happening. Okay. But you know, I think what I can say is that you know, eventually we did hear about it. There has since been wide-ranging turnover. Some because people's contracts have just expired, but in some cases because we've let folks go and have referred some of them to the authorities for investigation, prosecution. And then there's a bunch of process stuff that we're going to be doing differently. The first and most important, of course, is you know not allowing this registration exception for SIM cards, um, or at least not unless there are additional controls in place. But also to improve the firewalling between the different parts of the organization to make it harder for people to identify and build a relationship with the people that are holding them accountable. And then third, there's some stuff that, again that I mentioned that we can do in terms of automated data checks so that this stuff becomes visible to anyone. You know, even if you're not in the DRC, quickly if something's not happening.
1: Very cool. Is there any part of you that wonders if it just doesn't make sense to deliver cash in regions that are unsafe enough that you can't have the kind of processes that mean you can kind of guarantee that the cash is going to get where it's meant to go? So,
0: you know, I think that's possible that you could reach that conclusion for some parts of the world. I don't feel that we're anywhere close to that here in the sense that I think essentially we had this core trade-off to judge of like, is it better to ask recipients to make these trips themselves or for us to streamline that for them? And, you know, we've learned that we got that one wrong and we should do it the other way. And I think we'll do that. And I think that's part of learning the optimal cost mix, right, which includes both the costs that we bear and also costs that are imposed on recipients as part of the process. You know, we'll keep learning as we go. I think part of the context here is, you know, the big picture that increasingly the world's extreme poor do live in places that are fragile and conflict-affected. And so uh, learning how to work in places like the DRC, even if there is some mistakes made along the way and some pain in that process, is actually very important to addressing the problem of extreme poverty.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess, well, one, I do just want to say I was very impressed and appreciative and grateful as someone who's, uh, yeah, who cares about GiveDirectly and has donated um, that the team basically spoke as publicly as it did about this case. So I do think that is great. Are there any other lessons that you feel like come out of it besides, I guess, some of the specific things you mentioned. And then also, I guess it's not a new lesson. Uh, You've got this commitment to transparency and you've basically kind of uh, delivered on that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, of course, it is, as I said, gut-wrenching for us to have misjudged one of these things and got it wrong and to have to fix it. And um, I, at the same time, I'd say people have been, as you have been, I think, sort of incredibly supportive and said, this is actually, in fact, the way we need to talk about things in order to all learn and get better together. So I think that's been great. And that's something that I've often told people over the years and that I think still remains true is that, you know, every time in our history when something has gone wrong and we've had to make a decision about, you know, how much do we talk about it, how open to be, I think that people, we've really been rewarded in the long run for being upfront and honest with people about it. And so I'd say that is encouragement to other folks that are starting out.
1: Yeah, nice. Great. Let's push on to another topic. So another study that GiveDirectly is running is on universal basic income. So uh, I think, There are studies being run in Kenya, Malawi, Liberia, and I think the one in Kenya, if I remember correctly, is actually the longest-running UBI study to date. So I'm excited to hear at least, yeah, some of the basic details that the study's still in progress so you don't have, I don't know, the the long-term results that you'll eventually have. But just to start, can you explain the basic idea behind universal basic income?
0: Sure. So I think the way people usually define the idea is to say UBI is about giving everybody enough to meet some basic standard of living. And, you know, that's actually a little bit incomplete without saying a bit more about like where the money is going to come from, right? And so it turns out that there are some people who like that idea if what we mean is that we're going to finance it with additional taxes. And there are some people who like it if what we mean is we're going to cut some existing programs that they don't like so much. And so, you know, superficially, it might seem like we all like the idea. In fact, we have very different things in mind. So so I think that's important to say that, you know, you can't describe UBI without saying where you're going to get the money for it from. The other thing I'd emphasize, and this relates to the point you just made, is that UBI is sort of both the idea that everybody at any given point in time is getting enough to meet their basic needs, but it's also this idea that that's going to continue so that at all points in the future of my life, I could anticipate getting enough to meet my own basic needs. And I think that's very important. and We get into this, but that's one of the reasons why having this study in Kenya, which is going to be the longest running or longest commitment to providing people that basic standard of living is very, very important.
1: Cool. Yeah, I do want to get into that. Before we do, I wanted to talk about just some of the common objections. I think the most common ones I've heard are that that it might disincentivize work among recipients. Is that something you're worried about? It sounds like it's not something you've seen in other programs, but maybe it is the kind of thing that you might worry about when there is that long-term commitment.
0: Right. So I think disincentivize is, in fact, not quite the right concept in the sense that there are programs where your eligibility for benefits tapers out as you get better off, right? Like the EITC in the US, for example, there's a phase out where if you're earning above a certain level, you no longer get it. And so there's a very mechanical disincentive to earn more there. And that's not what we're talking about with UBI, because the whole idea is that it is unconditional on anything. It's like, no matter what, you're going to get this money, right? Right. So I think what people actually have in mind here is not like an incentive per se, but more that you know maybe you're just less motivated if some of your basic needs are already met to go out and earn more, So it's more of a sort of impact that income or wealth has on your personal motivation, which is a, a somewhat different thing. And that's also very important because, you know, I think, and I think the data also say that those sorts of income effects are actually probably very different in different contexts. And so in low-income countries in particular, right, people are extremely poor. And so getting somebody from, you know, below the poverty line to $2.15 a day is by no means going to make them feel content with their life or is that there's nothing else that they wish they could have. And on top of that, one of the barriers for many of them to work is just access to the capital, right, to the tools they need. And so there's this additional channel where, you know, hey, having access to some money might actually enable me to invest in ways that would make it worth working more. And so what we've actually seen in the data on most cash transfer programs in low-income countries has been, you know, either not much change in how much people work or a bit of an increase, you know, which is contrary, I think, to what a lot of people expect or were worried about.
1: Cool. Yeah, I do feel persuaded in particular about this if you're taking someone just slightly above the poverty line, that feels pretty different to, I don't know, giving them some some high monthly allowance. That means they can not only meet all of their basic needs, but have all the luxuries they want. So, yeah, I can see how someone just meeting their basic needs would not necessarily be discouraged from doing other types of productive work. But I guess before we move on and talk more about the study, I'm curious if you have a guess at what the best objection to UBI is.
0: I think it depends a bit on where we're talking about. So in in rich countries, if you do the math on something like UBI, it's very, very expensive. And I, I think that in rich countries, we have the administrative machinery to target benefits to people who are you know disabled or if you have hit hit some comes out of shock health insurance things like that in ways that poorer countries have less capacity to do. And so um, I think it's you know if you do these sort of technocratic math, it's not as clear to me in some of the richer countries that this would be the best way to spend a dollar to help people living in extreme poverty. In poorer countries, you know it may be that some degree of targeting or means testing or something like that, is a good idea, but the capacity to do that is more limited, and so I think there's a stronger case for maybe it's not universal everywhere, but you know, sort of large regions, for example, everybody getting uh, some degree of basic income, something like that. But I think the other thing to emphasize is that I don't think that UBI is fundamentally a sort of technocratic idea, right? It's not like someone sat down and wrote out the optimization problem of how can we do the most good for the world, and UBI popped out as the solution to that, you know, sort of with a given budget. It's more like this would be a different politics and a different ethics of what we think a just society might look like and something that people might be willing to get behind and, you know, therefore to, to spend or to give more than they would otherwise. And so in some sense, I think that's the real question about UBI. And it's not one that experimental evidence of impact is going to directly answer, although it could contribute to some extent.
1: Right. Right. Okay, and so that politics thing is the idea. There is basically currently we're not thinking of these basic needs as a universal right. The way we think of other things, like uh, it seems like most people in most countries agree that like you, no one should be able to physically harm you. That's a right you have. And here, I guess another example is like some countries think healthcare is a universal right, others don't, but. UBI is basically saying if people can get behind the idea that people have the basic right to have their basic needs met, and the way of kind of operationalizing that is giving people enough resources to get at least those very basic needs met. Is that the the basic idea? Am I getting that right? That's
0: it. I mean, and so look at sort of how political communication works. Right? Nobody gets up and says, hey, like, you know, great news. I have this complicated plan. We've really thought it through carefully. It's got these five different parts. Healthcare is going to work this way, all this stuff. You know, this is a great vision for what a fair society is going to look like. You know, it just doesn't work that way. But potentially you could say, I have this vision, which is that everybody should get enough to meet their basic needs. And people might support that and be willing to get behind that. And so the idea that this might be a politically viable narrative, even if it's not dollar for dollar, the sort of absolutely ideal optimal way to allocate a given budget. You know, I think that's very much an important part of the question about UBI.
1: Hmm. What do we know about that kind of political viability at the moment?
0: A bit. You know, I think the best that I've seen on this is a book I, I like called Give a Man a Fish, which is about sort of the new redistributive politics, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa in particular. I think it's still nascent. There are people who look at it and say, yeah, this seems like something that might get some traction. And there are people who say, I mean, I don't know, Andrew Yang is probably going to be eye. It's not going to get any higher than that. So we'll see.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about the specific experiments GiveDirectly is doing. So I've mostly heard about UBI proposals in relatively wealthy countries, and that already sounds pretty great to me. But in this experiment, people are able to go from below the poverty line, perhaps not having enough food to feed themselves, to having enough money to meet their basic needs for 12 years, which is, yeah, it just sounds really wonderful to me. How much exactly are recipients getting?
0: There are uh, three different arms in this study, so three different groups. The core, which we're calling the long-term arm, so those are the people who get that commitment for 12 years, they're getting 75 cents U.S. dollars nominal per day in monthly installments for 12 years. And so the way to think about that is 75 nominal cents that works out to about $1.90 at purchasing power parity, so adjusting for differences in prices between the U.S. and Kenya. And so that's almost the $2.15 a day poverty line that we uh, you know, sort of currently think about and talk about. It's not quite, but it's going to get everybody to that because people were not starting from zero. They're starting from some low numbers. So it's going to be enough right, to get everybody over that extreme poverty line for 12 years. Then there are two other arms, and those are there primarily as reference points or as from comparisons. In one, people are getting the same amount of money as in that long-term arm, but for just two years. And so part of what's interesting about that is it means when we go back and do surveys before those two years are up, those people have received the same amount of money as the people in that longer-term arm, but their expectations of the future are different. And that's important because that lets us learn something about, you know, do those expectations of the future matter for the way you behave today.
1: And can you can you talk about the hypothesis for why that might matter, those expectations?
0: You know, there you could probably imagine them, right? I mean, you think about the way we all make our plans and think about the future. We contemplate, you know, whether to take risks, where it may matter, you know, how much of a safety net is there for us in the future. You know, we decide whether to jump at an opportunity now or maybe wait to see if something better is going to come along. Those are the sorts of decisions that you might make differently if you envision that, hey, for some very long period of time, I have the safety net there. Um, we don't know, but those are the kinds of things we want to test.
1: yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, I guess, I was recently talking to a friend. I grew up in the U.S., but I live in the U.K., and my friend thinks it's just kind of absurd that I would ever hesitate before calling an ambulance. But this is just something I'm very trained to do because in the U.S., an ambulance ride might cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And so I guess there's just a similar thing, but in this kind of, yeah, financial stability sense. What you might do with your career or with your, a bunch of life plans, I can imagine making very differently if I knew at the end of the day, things are going to be like roughly fine. They're going to like bottom out, not at horrendous. They're going to bottom out at like, at tolerable. So, Uh,
0: you know, I think, I think that actually academic economists find this idea fairly easy to comprehend because it's very like tenure, right? So you kind of get tenure and you're like, oh great, you know, (laughs)
1: unless
0: I do something awful, I'm going to have, a very nice job for for foreseeable future, and so I can afford to take some risks and try some things that are a bit more out there, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, is there anything besides risk taking that that it might influence? So, I mean,
0: I think personally that another big one, if you're staying in your community and they're all getting those transfers as well, is you're like, "Wow, oh, there's this business opportunity that everybody here is going to be have all this this purchasing power for a long time." And so that's a kind of a hard thing to tease apart in the data. But you know, my basic economic intuition says there's a big opportunity for there and some people are going to jump at it.
1: Right. So some people might start businesses knowing that there's going to be more demand for goods than there was before because no one had enough money to buy things.
0: That's right. And there is a third very simple thing to keep in mind, which is that, you know, in principle it's possible that some people are able to get more of that money now. Right. So if you have like an annuity, for example, right, there are markets where you can sell your annuity and get a lump sum now. Here, we think those financial markets are probably not going to work very well. This is not an easy thing to securitize because it's not a standard thing. It's a very unusual thing to be getting UBI as part of this study. But there may also be some ways in which people are able to sort of essentially borrow against that future stream of earnings. And so that could also matter in terms of what they're able to do now.
1: Right. Okay. So just to make sure I understand, you can imagine something super informal where some person knows they have this income that's going to come in indefinitely, maybe... There aren't exactly the like formal structures for them to get a loan, but maybe they know someone who knows and believes that they're going to get that money. And so they might be able to borrow from that person. And that ability to borrow could make a big difference to their plans.
0: Exactly. And now we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves saying that, you know, in the data, we're not seeing an enormous amount of that. We don't see that people in the long-term arm are holding more debt, either formally or informally, but it's another consideration to keep in mind. So there's one more arm in which people get the same amount of money as they do in this short-term arm that we've discussed, but they get it all at once in one big lump sum. And so why is that interesting? It's because if you look at everything that we know about the financial lives of people living in or near extreme poverty, putting together lump sums is very difficult. It's difficult to do it by borrowing because credit markets don't work very well. It's difficult to do it by saving because there are lots of pressures on your saving, urgent needs, people asking for help, and savings vehicles just aren't very good. Some people don't even have access to a an account that bears a positive interest rate on it. And so um, for all those reasons, we think that it might be more impactful for people to get a chunk of money all at once than to get it spread out over the course of two years. And so that's what that last arm lets us examine.
1: Cool, okay. So the thinking there is there are things in life that cost a lot more than these people might be able to save, like, I don't know, maybe paying for some long-term education or buying some kind of bigger asset that might, yeah, that they might be able to make productive. So the thinking there is like UBI might be pretty good, but maybe it doesn't beat a single lump sum that would allow them to make some of those bigger purchases.
0: That's right. And to kind of presage a little bit what we'll talk about, when Give directly, when we've done studies, we've gone to people and said, hey, if there's a given amount of money that you could get, how would you like to structure it? Would you rather get it as like 12 monthly payments over the course of the next year or one big lump sum right now? Overwhelmingly, people say they'd like it in one or two or maybe three big lumps. And that's really interesting because that is starkly different from the way most cash transfer programs are structured today. Most of them are these streams of smaller payments.
1: Right. And I don't know that you've done any surveys to find out, but do you suspect that uh, the reason for that is basically most people feel like they've got some kind of big ticket item they'd like to buy or like would like that option?
0: Absolutely. And if you ask people, it's straightforward. And it's things like what you just described. It's, you know, this is when school fees are due or I want to purchase this. I'm going to build a house, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, it feels like another instance of this general principle, which is like, we like give directly has this money and the default should maybe be let people decide what they want to do with the money. Don't impose constraints on them. For example, spreading it out across 12 years. Yeah, I guess what's the kind of best reason that spreading it out might actually be, be much better?
0: So I think that there are some people who might value that if they feel like it's hard for me to save and budget and make sure that I consistently am able to meet basic needs. There's been some interesting recent research on the problem that people face during the lean season, right? So the time of year that's sort of like before the harvest, which is when cash runs shortest for most people, that you know this is something that happens every year and you can anticipate that it's going to happen every year. And yet still, sometimes people don't have enough money or just enough food set aside to budget for that. And it can be helpful to kind of help them plan for it. And so, you know, if you're somebody who knows, like, that's something I have a hard time with, I could totally imagine that it's helpful to say, let's just make sure that, like, through that part of the year, money shows up every, every uh, you know, every month.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine some skeptic thinking that the kind of distributed payments might help people, I guess, be more financially responsible. And this is not me implying that people... People in poorer countries are more financially irresponsible. I think I, for example, would have a harder time making financial decisions I endorsed if I got all of my salary for the year at one time. Is that something that you can investigate?
0: I mean, I think I hear what you're saying. And I love this point because I think it sort of both illustrates the the insight and the hubris that we sometimes bring to these issues. yeah. So I think it is exactly right that like people living in poverty sometimes have a hard time sticking to plan or sort of using money in the ways that their sort of real long-term self would like to. And they say that, right? but what they say is actually the exact opposite of what we just said, which is the hard thing is if I have a little bit of money every month, you know, there's all these pressures, people asking for help. I'm going to be tempted to just use it on something fun today. And so it's going to be hard for me to ever like save up and Make the investment or kind of buy the big thing that I wanted to. And so I actually really need the lump sum, right? So, this intuition that, like, oh, the problem is that if you get a lump sum, you're going to blow it is exactly the opposite of the way people are thinking about their own self control problems. Mm. And it'd be silly not to kind of tap into that. Like, they understand it, I think, much better than we do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I buy that. Cool. That just makes lots of sense to me. Should we talk about the results, at least the preliminary results?
0: Yeah, so you know, we haven't put out sort of a full set of preliminary results yet. And so I'm, you know, not at liberty to kind of talk in much depth about any of that. We did put out an initial set of results just during the pandemic. And the philosophy there was simply to let policymakers know what we knew at that time that we thought might be relevant for policymaking during the early days of COVID. And that was actually quite exciting in the sense that I think there's, you know, some sort of basically positive results in there and that contributed to some other countries in Sub-Saharan Africa deciding to ramp up their cash transfer programming. In response to COVID.
1: Very cool. Okay, so one set of results uh, was promising enough that other countries started doing transfers during the pandemic. Can you say what was so exciting about those results?
0: You know, it's fairly straightforward stuff. It's saying that people are less likely to be experiencing food insecurity, sort of unable to eat enough during the pandemic. So, you know, I don't think it's anything deeply surprising, but there were some questions in the early days of the pandemic about like, hey, you know, if we're in lockdown and people can't even go out to kind of buy food, like, is it even going to matter? they get cash transfers, um, things like that. So so, I think it sort of helped a little bit to kind of address some of that stuff. The other thing that was interesting is that, you know, if you look at the people who had been getting transfers before the pandemic started, they see sort of less of a drop in their uh, food security, but more of a drop in their income because they had, in fact, like started businesses and been earning more money before the pandemic. And so you sort of see this dual function of the transfers that they're sort of stimulating investment, which in one sense makes you more vulnerable to a big economic shock, right? Because your business might lose all of its customers, but they're also providing you with this cushion where, you know, you may lose a lot of revenue, but you're still able to put food on the table.
1: Yeah. Moving on to the kind of broader results outside of the pandemic, what are the basic things we're seeing so far? Yeah.
0: So, you know, the, we haven't put this out. And so, um you know, I'm only going to talk in sort of generalities about things that I'd say, like we all agree are sort of pretty fair big picture takeaways at this point. But three things that I think stand out. Um, one is just that, uh, you know, you see this big expansion in local economic activity, um, analogous to what we talked about earlier in the context of the general equilibrium study. The second is that um because I think people care so much about work and labor supply, how hard are people working is this disincentivizing effort, you know, although as I said, I think that's not quite the right phrasing. But you know, we're again, we're not seeing significant changes in how many hours people are working. We are seeing some changes in how they're working, in that they are moving away from working for other people and towards working for themselves. So more self-employment. And that self-employment is mainly going to be in retail and uh, non-agricultural self-employment. And then the third thing, which I I think is really interesting, is that certainly on some of these aggregate measures of economic activity, we are seeing pretty big differences, in some cases significant, between that long-term arm where people in the community expect to get money for 12 years and the short-term where they're only getting it for two. Even though at the time we measured these outcomes, they had both received the same amount of money. So their payment streams up until now, at the time that we measure outcomes, have looked identical. The difference is that in one group, they expect them to continue longer. And in that group, we see these sort of much larger effects on economic activity. And so, um, you know, we're, we're still kind of digging through and thinking about what we can say with some confidence about why exactly that is. Um, and we've talked earlier about some of the possible mechanisms. But the very practical reasons it's important is because there are many of these UBI pilots and evaluations now being run around the world, uh, which is cool. And I think we can learn a lot from them, but most of which are very short term, right? A year or two year commitment. And so what this result says is that at least in our context, we would miss something important if we weren't able to uh, look further out than that. Or maybe another way to say it is that I think all of these are going to be very informative about what people do with incremental money. And so if that's the main thing that you're worried about with respect to UBI or cash transfers in general, this is going to be really helpful data for you. But if what you're wondering is like, hey, do people live their lives differently if they know that there is this safety net there for them in the future? We don't learn about that unless we actually make that long-term commitment. Yeah,
1: cool. Okay. So the experiment in Kenya is meant to last a total of 12 years. Yeah, when those 12 years are up, what kinds of outcomes do you hope to see for recipients?
0: I I, I don't know that I'd say there's something specifically I'm hoping for. I'm, I'm kind of doing this because I'm curious. And I think that we'll learn things that will matter for decision-making. I, one of the things that I'm curious about is this idea that with a long-term transfer, you don't need to commit to a course of action right away because you have time to wait. And you know, I don't know if that's going to be true, but it could be that there's a little bit of difference between long-term and short-term or long-term and long-term initially. But then over time, you really start to see people say, here's the opportunity I've been waiting for you. Now's the time when I can my family's in good shape and I can afford to move to the city or whatever it is, right? So I feel like that's sort of one of the most important hypotheses that we're going to be testing as we continue to track people over the longer
1: run. Cool, cool. When can we expect an update?
0: Uh, you know, it's always soon with academic papers. Yep. We have a responsibility to be really, really sure that everything's right. And that's the thing we're going to prioritize. Um, but that said, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that soon is this year. All goes well.
1: Cool. Okay. Well, we look forward to hearing that update, and and we'll we'll link to it whenever whenever that comes out. Okay, we've got time for just one final question. So, your research focuses on, yeah, accelerating the end of extreme poverty. Is there a topic you're into without clear social benefits uh, that's kind of yeah purely just intellectual curiosity?
0: Great. I think the most useless thing I can think of, like the thing that is like there's no plausible way in which it could make the world better, is I, I play a kind of a niche card game called Sky Joe with my friends. Huh. And so my summer project has been to try to teach an AI to play it well enough that I can pick up new strategies from the uh, you know, reinforcement learning algorithm so that I can beat my friends and that's entirely zero sum. There's no way, you know, whatever I gain, they're gonna lose. So that's
1: awesome. What does that entail for you? Like how are you basically training it and how do you learn from it?
0: Uh, I mean, it's you know, reading up on reinforcement learning, understanding it. It's 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 cool stuff and it's actually very similar to the modeling techniques that economists use to solve dynamic optimization problems. It's, you know, learning some coding. I've been blown away at how good ChatGPT is as a teacher and a tutor. So I'm able to pick up new coding things so much faster. I've been really impressed by that.
1: Very cool. Have you been able to use any of the strategies yet?
0: I have so far only built totally naive strategies that play randomly. So I've learned nothing to date. I have some unresolved questions about the size of the game and how much computational resources I'm going to need to be able to actually do this, and whether it is sort of the thing that one can actually do as a summer project, or whether I need to go out and raise a round of funding if I want to do this. And so I'm still trying to calculate that. But it's been fun.
1: Cool. I love that. Okay. Well, my guest today has been Paul Niehaus. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening. Um, And uh, to the extent this has been compelling, you want to support us, givedirectly.org and uh, sharing the evidence on what we're doing, I think is the other key thing to do.
1: If you want to learn more about the most effective ways to alleviate poverty, I'd recommend going back to listen to some of our past episodes. For example, episode 153, Ali Hassenfeld on two big-picture critiques of GiveWell's approach and six lessons from their recent work. Episode 129, Dr. James Tabendurana on the -the state-of-the-art malaria control and elimination. Episode 124, Karen Levy on fads and misaligned incentives in global development and scaling deworming to reach hundreds of millions. And episode 105, Alexander Berger on improving global health and well-being in clear and direct ways. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell, with mastering and technical editing by Dominic Armstrong and Milo McGuire. Additional content editing by me and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more. Those are available on our site. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.